Welcome to the Capital City Crew Podcast. Join your hosts Jeff, Owen, Josh, and Herman as they dive deep into the game of Malifaux. Explore sophisticated strategies and creative combinations, but always remember in Malifaux, bad things happen. Hello, and welcome to the Capital City Crew Podcast. We are coming back at you for our second episode. Today, we're continuing the discussion from last episode uh, of missions, and we're going to focus today on the schemes of Gaining Ground Season 1. So with me here are my favorite and awesome co-hosts, Jeff Mansker. Hi. Josh. Evening, folks. Herman. How is Jeff the only one who got a last name? I, you know, I... Because people would recognize the name. You just go back to your whole Herman. You're like Madonna and I'm like Cher. It's mostly because Jeff has his last name in uh, the... Zen Don't Master. validate their whining. Yeah. Um, also, I'll probably mispronounce Josh's last name. But mine's okay. Thanks. Oh, oh, we're gone. Or, or, or how, how is it it's hard to say oregano? Anyways. All right. So uh, to talk about schemes today, we're going to, well, first I'm going to start by shamelessly plugging an article that I wrote for the Third Floor Wars website uh, that is called Malifaux, Stop Making Bad Strategy and Scheme Pools. Uh, it's an article all about how tournament organizers should pick mixes of schemes and strategies that make for exciting and interesting games. So definitely go take a look at that on thirdfloorwars.com. Uh, but we'll be using from that uh, the grouping of schemes that I put forth in that article, which is to group schemes along two axes. One what type of scheme it is. And we're divide that into positional, killing, and scheme marker schemes. And then the second axis is whether that scheme is independent or dependent on your opponent's actions. So we'll get, a, as we get into the, each of those categories, uh, we will go over what that means and the details of it and why it matters. Uh, but that's the overarching framework that we're gonna use for this episode. So uh, to talk a little bit about the idea of independent or dependent schemes, uh, why don't we go to Jeff? So personally, when I'm playing, uh, I like to go with uh, independent schemes uh, that you basically don't have to rely on actions that your opponent is doing. Uh, and as opposed to dependent where your opponent has to accomplish something. Uh, these are in the past things like you needed your opponent to kill a model. You need your uh, the opponent to stand at a specific spot or something along that line. Uh, so typically when you're going into a tournament envir environment, you're going to want to take an independent scheme over a dependent one with a lot of your, your crews uh, because those are things that you can guarantee where the others you can't. So um, anybody else have any opinions on that? I think it certainly got a little bit harder with the independent schemes going into gaining grounds one because you lost things like um, was when you had to be on each corner outflank um, or the ley line center placement. So now it's been replaced with ones that are more involved, more complicated, like a research mission where you have to be able to put down all these different tokens. You have to have the right models to do that. There are more hoops to jump through. 
So I think it really actually kind of evens out this idea between independent and dependent scheming. Yeah, the hoops you have to jump through with the dependent schemes are also slightly less predictable than they used to be. It was no longer just going to the corners or just standing at the table edge uh, near the center line to score the schemes. You're now, even though there are independent of your, your opponent's actions or the positions of their models in most cases, they still require something else on the board that you're doing stuff in reference to. Uh, in some cases, it's a piece of terrain. In some cases, it's another marker that either you or your opponent has put down. But the dependent ones, I totally agree with the assessment that they can be more reliable because you don't have to sort of play mind games with your opponent. And you also can have a better understanding of what your opponent's capabilities are and whether they are able to thwart uh, your your uh, independent schemes via removing markers via moving your models from the position that you put them in. So one thing I, I will mention, though, is I love how weird with each gaining grounds uh, they go through and they learn from the schemes that they've done before. Uh, as an example, nobody liked uh, having um, Soulstone Miners pop up as the last action in the turn and suddenly you're able to score from it. Uh, and weird learns from these things. And so they implement new rules where, like, when you pop up, you cannot uh, count as scoring for that turn and things like that. So uh, I expect to see a scheme very similar to that in the future uh, in another gaining grounds uh, but with model corrections in the way weird is good like that learning from mistakes occasional erratas on models to remove some of the abusive things so if you are really just leveraging some cheesy stuff to to accomplish things maybe you can be the reason that they change these schemes in the future arcanists arcanists So at the end of this, we'll spend a little bit of time looking to the future of what things we'd love to see in a future Gaining Grounds. Uh, And caveat, we have no idea what Gaining Grounds Season 2 will look like. So this is pure speculation. Um, But before we jump into all the schemes, anyone else have general strategy rules of thumb that players listening to this podcast should keep in mind as they're choosing their schemes? I mean, I think a big one is to also take into consideration your strategy and your crew and how that synergizes together. They had a different podcast where they were talking about putting the strategy aside and only focusing on scoring schemes, which is a very different way to take a uh, different point of view to take when planning out your crew and your list building, whereas most of us, okay, I've got a strategy. You're going to pick a crew that's good at that strategy. Now what schemes kind of function in with that? Yeah, and uh, along that same vein, uh, I just want to point out, you want to take schemes that are complementary to each other. And when I say you want them to be complementary, you don't want them to be the same. Like, as an example, you don't want to grab something like Leave Your Mark along with uh, Breakthrough because you're trying to rely on having a whole bunch of scheme markers being placed on the enemy side of the board. All of the, like, that's a lot of actions that you're taking at, at all at one time. And that's one of the common mistakes that I see made in tournaments is somebody will uh, take a typical normally crew, even if it's a scheme heavy crew, and they'll take something where like in the last turn, they have to have a total of six scheme markers down. And that's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. So uh, just make sure you take things that are complementary. Uh, and we can talk about more about that type of stuff in the future. Having a plan really help out when you're trying to uh, accomplish your schemes. Think about how you're going to get to the location you need to get to, 
how many markers you can reasonably put out, uh, and what you can do while accomplishing those tasks that will thwart your opponent. Can you put down your scheme markers while picking up your opponent's markers? That's a really good uh, shift in, in uh, the board presence. So having a, a good plan whenever you're selecting your schemes of how exactly you're going to accomplish them uh, will help you pick uh, schemes more intelligently. Something else you want to always think about too is when you're doing crew building, if at all possible, you should try to make sure your crew could achieve any of the schemes. Not necessarily because you're going to pick any one at random, but you don't want to give your opponent information by obviously being unable to take one. So, for example, uh, if you were doing something like Hidden Martyrs, the combinations of models you take, like if you take no minions, you know, well, I can't do Hidden Martyrs. So that is their scheme choice must be one of the other ones. You want to try to avoid giving your opponent options and give yourself the flexibility to at least mildly bluff other schemes. And uh, tagging on to that, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a tournament setting. Uh, I make my lists in that exact same way, uh, where my whole list will be able to accomplish pretty much all four uh, of the schemes that are available. But on top of that, I have specific models in mind that are going to be accomplishing those uh, the those schemes, but I also have a backup plan in case something goes awry because during the game, something always goes wrong. But aside from that, um, just making sure that you don't want to broadcast. And there's been many times that I've been in a tournament where I just looked across the table and been like, he has this uh, scheme and he has this scheme. And that's because he failed on the list building portion of this. Something else to consider is don't be afraid to break keyword. I was, uh, for example, playing against Jacob Lynch, where Lynch himself is generally considered a brick crew, where they all kind of stare near each other and kind of move up into the center of the table. But he had hired in a Juan Yudo, he had hired in a Dawn Serpent, so that way he could run those far schemes, even though those are not Honeypot keyword. Well, it probably has something to do with the Dawn Serpent being so good. Nerf 10 Thunders? I think we can all agree on that. Hey, as long as it's not Nerf Leviticus, I'm happy. Nerf Leviticus. And on that note, uh, let us go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start with the first category of schemes, and that is positional schemes. All right, welcome back. So we are going to start off our scheme by scheme review with the positional schemes. So there are four schemes in this category, and that is catch and release, claim jump, research mission, and take prisoner. These are all schemes that involve having a model in the right place at the right time, either in relation to a place on the board, like claim jump, a particular type of marker, like research mission, or an enemy model in the case of catch and release and take prisoner. These schemes have the benefit of being something that you can control and they can be fairly action point uh, advantageous in the sense that 
you just have to be there. You don't have to spend additional AP to do something like killing an enemy or dropping a scheme marker. So uh, with that introduction out of the way, what are your all's thoughts on positional schemes in Gaining Ground Season 1? I I like them for pretty much the exact reason you mentioned, that you don't have to spend anything outside of movement AP to accomplish those uh, schemes. Uh, the, the, the mixture of them is pretty exciting. They mix up exactly what you need to be next to uh, in some interesting ways. Uh, like catch and release and take prisoner. Uh, having to be next to the right enemy model at the right time. And in the case of take prisoner, having as few other models around it as possible uh, just makes it really interesting. You can leverage highly mobile crews and force movement to accomplish these nicely. Uh, for me, it's more of a, a mixed bag. I think some of these are very good, and you see them a lot, uh, particularly with certain crews like Research Mission uh, and Claim Jump. But uh, others, like Catch and Release, is a little more of a difficult type uh, thing. And you know, with these, when we get more into the specifics of the, the schemes, then uh, we can talk about like how you mitigate those with certain crews. But in some situations, uh, some of these are a lot more difficult to do with certain crews than they are for others yeah i mean it was interesting coming from guild over to neverborn when all of a sudden research mission became much more open to me in that faction whereas in guild it's just there's not a lot there for you to do because there's just not a lot of marker dropping so of these schemes i think research mission is my favorite in season one it plays really well with my favorite master which is misaki um her ability to drop shadow markers just creates a really easy way to score this, uh, which I think is a theme overall. If you're going to take research mission, you're going to want to take it with a crew that can drop at least one type of unique marker, be that shadow markers for Misaki, uh, pyre markers for Karis and Riva, uh, ice pillars for Euripides or Rasputina. Um, or even something like the blown apart markers in a Parker crew. Anything, any one of those can really create a lot of great opportunities to score. And hopefully you can engineer it so that your opponent can't score off your own markers. So do the blown apart markers go away at the end of the turn? Nope. They do Next not. Next time you use the ability. So you can only have one on the board at a time, but it stays until you use the ability again. Oh, that's the kick, kick up dust goes away at the end of the turn. Yeah. Yeah. Bass is unfortunately kind of screwed at it. Bass is bad at something? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Don't take research mission with Bass. It would be a disappointing discovery. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on catch and release? Because this, this is the scheme of this group that I I think I take the least. I mean, it's certainly the one that I take the least because you have so many what I call steps involved in it, you know, kind of gates that you got to pass through. First, it's, it's got to be a minion. You have to have dur durability in order for it to survive contact after you score the point because then someone's going to try to kill it. And then you have to have the ability to get it there. So that's something where, you know, I say, you know, don't limit yourself to keywords, sit there 
you know, you have the app sort by minion. What are all the minions I got access to? So like when you do this for guild, for example, you go through and you're like, okay, you know, you got this, 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 that. Nope, they all suck. Except for then finally you get to the hunter. And the hunter, he's got armor. He's got deadly pursuit for that four-inch push. He has pounce on the chest so he can actually place himself over. And it's against size. So that way, you know, most of the masters are size two. You're not at a stat deficit. Um, so he has kind of that combination of abilities you're looking for. But you go over to like Neverborn and that's significantly harder to find. Yeah, uh, going along with that, uh, I think catch and release, you have to have a certain type of crew in order to do it. You need things like leaps uh, and you need uh, deadly pursuit is great for this type of thing. Uh, But I think this is one of those things where you fundamentally have to change your thought process on how the game works when you start looking at some of these schemes. Like in this situation, you're going to want to take a model that gives you a Uh, plus to your initiative where you can try to win initiative and force your opponent to go first where you have the last activation and you can have to try to play where you guarantee you have the last activation. And if you do have that last activation, that's fairly trivial for you to do uh, catch and release. Like you get close enough, you leap them over or you fly or whatever it is that you have to make it happen. But this scheme completely depends on what you do at the beginning of the turn, not what you're doing during the turn. I don't know if I quite agree with that characterization. Uh, the way I frequently try to accomplish this one is with force move on either my models or my opponent's models. So you get to the point where you know the position of your uh, the enemy. Uh, that frequently they'll have multiple targets, either a master or a henchman. You don't have to pick at the start. Uh, and you position it so that you have a minion that can be force moved into that location. Uh, you know, I do a lot of cry and uh, guide spirits is, is fairly common. So giving something a walk just at arbitrary points throughout the turn is something that's pretty easy to accomplish. Uh, and then you can kind of bluff that you don't have it at that point. By, you know, you move the model up, you attack them a bunch, you make it look like it's there for just perfectly legitimate normal reasons, and then at the end of the round, catch and release. Uh, Does tend to catch people by surprise. I think another one that could work pretty well is uh, Dreamer, since he just, you you summon in a model and then you plop it down, and it doesn't have to be with the willpower duel off the Dreamer. So as long as at the end of the turn you're able to catch their master, you can just plop a model down on top of him. So summoners that pop things out uh, can be very surprising and help that way too. I, I will say, uh, when you pick your schemes, uh, similar to what we were talking about before, they need to be complementary with the strategy uh, and, and other schemes. If you have uh, something like uh, Assassinate in the Pool along with uh, Collect the Bounty uh, as your, your, you know, if you have lures and you start luring their master over, they're going to be concerned about keeping their master alive. They're going to be spending all of their cards and all their time trying to keep that master alive instead of worrying about you're getting a model over there to stand next to them. So, you know, that's a good way to kind of, it's not really bluffing it, but making them think something else is going to happen. Such a, that's a really good point, Jeff. I like that a lot. Like being able to almost do the inverse of, well, they're expecting you to do X, so you're going to catch them off guard. I, I know catch and release often catches me off guard when people do it. Oh, like, oh right. <laughs> this scheme, oops, I never take it, so I always forget it. So uh, 
anyone I play in the future, forget everything I just said and don't take this scheme. But does it release you off guard too? <laughs> take well, prisoner. Know. Yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Take prisoner has some similar stuff going on. Only, uh, I think I'd be more inclined to take catch and release than take prisoner. Honestly, it's just the amount of extra stuff. If you can talk about extra things you have to do to accomplish this, uh, getting the model, your enemy model, away from the rest of their crew. Uh, not always easy. No, but I think the thing with Take Prisoner is that you can leverage a lot of the synergies that we talked about last episode with the strategies, where we were talking about, you know, corrupted ley lines. You're going to bring in those lures because you're going to want to pull people off the point. You're going to want to mess with your opponent. And those same tools also help you Take Prisoner. It helps you separate that guy off the pack. Uh, I, I just uh, am not a big fan of Take Prisoner because of the prevalence, especially against certain... Uh, factions like 10 thunders where there's a lot of uh, things like laugh off where they're just like, you know, I'm not actually going to let you move me uh, or, you know, we, I, I have a lot of positional based things myself and my crew. So uh, when you pull me to uh, towards you, it's a very telegraphed move where, you know, I'm luring your, your target towards me and then I'm like getting it closer so that I can go take prisoner. Well, the, like the second that you start luring me, but then you're not actually trying to kill me, like make sure that you follow up that with some attacks make, and you have to be careful about this because you don't want to kill your target, but at the same time, you don't want to let them know that you're doing take prisoner. So if you just lure them and then go stand next to them, that's a bad idea. Oh, if you want to talk about bad idea schemes, we have claim jump. Which there are. You mean best idea schemes? Yeah, I, I love claim jump. Oh, oh no, it's just like it's so easy to thwart. You just have a just walk a dude up into the center of the board, and it's just like, well, I guess I can't score this. Well, the the thing here is, uh, I, I mentioned this in one of the, my earlier podcasts um, with Marcus. As an example, if you do the thing that I mentioned before, where uh, you take something like Ill Omens, where you have a positive to the initiative and you guarantee that you're the last one to go, you can run, it doesn't matter who's in the middle, you can run Kojo into the middle and he will automatically push everybody there back and you will automatically score this strat. There's nothing your opponent can do about it if you have the last activation and Kojo is within, I think it's like 10 inches of the center board. Uh, that's just an automatic scheme score for you. So it, once again, all these things are kind of crew-based. They're not, uh, like, different factions will have different uh, positives and negatives for these schemes. Of all of the positional ones, I think Claim Jump is the one you need to have the most definite plan for. Because you can also do a similar thing with uh, Fuhatsu. Uh, run Fuhatsu up, auto-push everyone out, score Claim Jump. Uh, but you need to have a very definite plan as to how you're going to accomplish Claim Jump before you consider taking it. Well, I mean, I think part of it is that I love playing Pandora, and camping in the center and moving your opponent's models away is straight up her alley. And then, in addition, in Neverborn, you have Serena Bowman, who's ridiculously durable. She's a support model that you're not really using for work, so you don't mind having her camping in the center. So between that combination of a master that likes to play that game and having a strong model in faction for that uh, strat scheme, it works well together. 
I also want to uh, go back to Owen's article here that he wrote for Third Floor Wars, uh, where your tournament organizer should be making scheme pools uh, that complement the strat uh, and can be accomplished in different ways. Like Claim Jump is a great addition to something like Symbols of Authority, where you want to get across the board, uh, but at the same time, you know, if you leave one of your guys standing in the middle of the, the board, like he's not accomplishing Symbols of Authority, but he can get your scheme that way. And typically with Symbols, your guys are kind of spread out as it is. So uh, having things that are complementary by your tournament organizers is definitely needed. And I think also for claim jump, it's a scheme that, well, obviously for any scheme, if you have a chance to score it, you go for it. But I think the plan for claim jump for me is typically to score it on turn three or turn four, because hopefully by that point, I've been able to shift the momentum either by in outcast shooting down my opponent's guys that are in the middle or moving up my crew so that I'm at least on the center line. If I have, for lack of a better term, linebackers blocking along the center line, you can easily have a model that is within two of the center point where your own models prevent the enemy from being within three just by taking that position. So if you if your plan involves either a bubble crew that's going to take the center and hold it, or a crew that is going to push the enemy away, shoot them down, make them scared to congregate in the middle, this can be a great scheme because while the enemy is not around, you just run someone up and score it uh, later in in the game. I mean, I wanted to be sarcastic and be like, your games go to turn four. But unfortunately, it does bring up like a legitimate question of when do you actually declare that you're scoring a scheme? Are you going to try to wait later or are you going to try to score earlier? Because I don't trust the clock. I'm generally of the opinion that you score early and you score often. Well, I think that also depends on what your opponent is playing. There are some uh, crews that if you declare your scheme early, uh, it can can severely, uh, Yoko comes to mind, it just boosts her crew. Uh, There's also, I believe there are models that uh, get fast if the scheme is declared. So uh, there's interesting interactions if you do it too early. And for uh, claim jump, you have to consider your opponent's ability to take out your claimant. Uh... Like, Serena is really resilient, but if you're going up against a crew that has uh, Lantern of Souls or uh, Executes, they can take her out and get past her her demise, uh, and then a goodly chunk of her resilience has been uh, negated. So one last thing before we go to a break and move on to the next category. For positional schemes... Are there any things that you all look for in your crew to help, well, a crew or your strategy to help deny your opponent scoring any of these schemes? Um, Gravity well. One of the biggest sources of casual mobility are flight and leap, and gravity well can help control a a region. It's just generally a very strong ability. it's kind of a shame that's only in two factions. Mm, it's true. Well, not, I think uh, staggered is an underrated uh, 
uh, condition. I couldn't think of the name of it. Uh, I think if you have something that can apply a ranged staggered, uh, it, it like it, that's a huge benefit, especially with uh, some of these crews. When you're walking three inches, and or uh, another great example is Titania putting down all those severe markers. Uh, when you're at half movements, these things are very difficult to accomplish. Oh, I adore staggered. Um, I think it's also interesting to point out that with at least three of these, and we were talking even last week about strategies, brick crews. With a brick crew, it's very hard to catch and release because you have to isolate the master and not be engaged with another model. Uh, similarly with claim jump, we're talking about taking a brick and camping on that point. With take prisoner, again, you're trying to bust a model out of that bubble. So it's kind of an interesting thing where, you know, we talk about Malifaux and we talk about how you can spread out and you have all these different schemes and strategies that require you playing the entire table. But now as we go into gaining grounds one or towards the end of gaining grounds one now in the year, you're seeing a lot more of this brick play style. And I'm wondering if it'll expand out again for next season. Can you explain a little more about what you mean by a brick play style for those who might not be familiar with the term? Essentially keeping all wait, of your wait, crew. Wait, wait, hold on. A... I got this one. What Herman does is he has a brick with what? him at all times. And when his opponent starts winning, he throws the brick. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry. Go ahead, Herman. I'm just confused on how that still works on you virtually. It's a big brick. It, it uh, makes you flip the table every single time, too. So uh, basically, when I say brick play style, keeping all of your crew within a relatively small space, you know, around eight inches. So that way, all the models are there. It's easy for them to support each other. And it's difficult for your opponent to kind of single one out, get them off the uh, side of the pack or a bubble is another way of saying it. Yeah, those are going to be your typical crews like Pandora, Lynch, um, basically things that have auras that synergize with each other uh, so that when something happens, uh, there are things that can protect it. Uh, Nelly has a little bit of that going on. It's uh, the, I think the best example that I have is Lynch, where if you get those auras that stack up, that is his defense. If But if you lure like uh, Tannen out of that whole grouping, suddenly it becomes a whole lot easier to kill Lynch. All right. Well, there you have it for positional schemes. So we're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to move on to everyone's favorite, the killing schemes. Murder! All right. Welcome back. We are going to talk next about everyone's favorite, the killing schemes. So there are four killing schemes in Gaining Ground Season 1, and they are Assassinate, Vendetta, Hidden Martyrs, and Let Them Bleed. So these are the classics, uh, if you will. Uh, they are schemes that are all about killing specific opponents' models in some way, or, or models dying in the case of Hidden Martyrs, which is in the uh, long Malifaux tradition of frame for murder, where you want your own guys to die. So to tell us a little more about the overall killing schemes, let's take it to the rest of the panel and say, what are your all's first thoughts about killing schemes? So I can tell you right now, the killing schemes are actually not my favorite. Uh, I don't, and this goes, speaks to the whole independent versus dependent. 
Um, there have been so many times where I've been in a tournament and I've been tallying what points I'm going to get because they kind of do that as I'm going through. Like I get, I'm going to get this point from doing this. I'm going to get this point from doing this. And I know for a fact that uh, all I have to do, I have, you know, the 13 of something in my hand uh, and I can kill, take this last wound off of what, are, you know, as for assassinate or for uh, vendetta, something along that line. And I go to cheat in the, the, the 13 and in my flip, I get the black joker. So I'm not allowed to cheat and you know that that i attack a second time and they flip a 13 and are higher than me and that like there goes my chance so i'm not a huge fan of the killing schemes uh some of them are i think they're needed and i will take them uh as uh, i don't avoid them but they aren't my favorite for those reasons have you tried playing better i've tried and apparently i failed at it so uh shut up herman Generate superior random numbers, maybe? Uh, just just a thought. Yeah, I usually just buy three decks and take out the bad cards. It's a life choice. Um, Actually, that reminds me of... We have a friend named Mike, uh, and at one point he was playing uh, with a deck, and at some point uh, someone found... Uh, that he had been playing without like a, a card in his deck and the card was something like the a four <laughs> and uh so no it was it was a high card wasn't it it was like a, a 13 or something so it was, it was uh, a four uh, i, I still have it oh you still have the you still have, Wait, you card. Still have the four why did you no, do no. that no no so like all right so <laughs> brief digression he like I had all of his Malifaux stuff because I was transporting it for something. And for some reason, like I was using, like I used his deck for something. And then I realized he had two fours. So like it was technically cheating, but like cheating in a way that like underpowered his deck. Cause he had, he must've obviously like shuffled in someone else's card who had the same deck. Uh, but I was like, Oh, you have, you have doubles of a crappy card. Uh, that's very suboptimal. Yeah, so um, if you're listening to this and you're playing the DC region and you've ever been down and played over at Mike's, you may be missing a four from your deck. Yep, from several years ago. All right, so... In our meta, we call that balance. Yeah, right. So bringing back the killing schemes, though, um, why, don't we, why don't we go scheme by scheme and talk a little bit about them? So why don't we start it off with the classic, Assassinate, which is killing your opponent's master, which is... Of all the schemes in Malifaux 2nd and 3rd edition, one of the most common, although interestingly, it did not appear in the 2017 or 2018 gaining grounds. There was no assassinate the enemy leader related scheme, but it has appeared in every other edition of Malifaux's missions. What are your all's thoughts on assassinate? I like assassinate. I like Assassinate because it is one of the few schemes that rewards you for doing a thing that you want to do anyway. But it does it in an interesting way. Like, generally speaking, you probably want to kill your opponent's master. They're very powerful and are frequently just like the linchpin for a crew. So you want them dead. Um, But you don't get points for it normally. And it doesn't actually advance your uh, strats and schemes except for Assassinate. Now the fact you have to do it over two turns... Uh, to get both points, I thought it was just a really interesting balancing factor to put on top of it. But I like I like being rewarded for doing things that you want to do anyway, which is also why, I, in general, I'm a fan of, of most of the killing, or I guess only half of the killing schemes. 
getting rewarded for doing stuff that you want to do is just value added. I actually really don't enjoy it. And I think it's because I'm just like a nice fluffy guy where I don't like killing models and I don't like having my models killed. I'd much rather be like, you know, running all over the table and doing things in the back. But I think it also comes from like, I played a lot of War Machine. And in War Machine, the moment you lose your Warcaster, who's equivalent of a master, you lose the game. So you are protecting the hell out of that model. And so when a lot of my friends and group come from that point of view, all of a sudden we're all protecting the hell out of our master, regardless of whether or not it impacts the game. And it becomes this huge, huge resource sink where you're trying to get them down, you're telegraphing what you're doing, they have the soul stones, they have a lot more resources to stay up, and then they're healing back up as well. So there's a lot of times I think Assassin it can just be a huge resource sink with little payoff. Uh, I will say, um, I like the change, uh, as Josh mentioned, where you now have to uh, split the uh, killing a master between two different turns in order to gain the, the full points from that. Um, before, I used to hate assassinate uh, because somebody could quite literally get lucky and kill off your master. Uh, they could run in uh, in last edition, uh, run in on your master, uh, flip a red joker, do like six or seven damage to it, and then hit it a, a second time. And some masters just died from that. Um, so now that it's split between two, I don't have to worry as much. Um, but I think Herman and I come from the same. I, I don't come from War Machine, but he and I both... Uh, have been playing Neverborn for quite a while and traditionally Neverborn masters are not what you'd consider the tankiest of things in the world. So uh, especially in last edition, your, your masters wanted to be in up in the melee. They wanted to be in the thick of things, but it's not like they had much protection for themselves. So uh, assassinate was always a problem. Uh, Not that you couldn't work around it, but it was a suboptimal scheme when you played Neverborn in my opinion. Well, and I also come from a perspective where, as things get hurt in Malifaux, their effectiveness does not decrease. So if I'm going to put the same amount of attacks to remove a model and take all this AP off versus the same amount of attacks to work down a master who may or may not heal, may not get down to that health, half health mark, which is more efficient for me? You know, something that limits my opponent or something that isn't going to immediately hurt their effectiveness but may in a turn or two? I think the key for Assassinate if you're evaluating, do I take this scheme or not, is really thinking about what your opponent's master can do in terms of either healing, avoidance, or what their crew can do. Because there are some masters who are nigh impossible to kill, either because they're constantly healing themselves or because they can disappear or blink away or yeah uh, uh, zip colette masaki um tara <laughs> leviticus like all like all of these masters they're very difficult to kill so you don't want to choose assassinate into them but many of your more traditional masters you want to kill them like they're doing bad stuff if you have the option you should go for it um and often if they can be healed up by another model say looking at neverborn serena bowman the bane of my existence the the model that can heal everything constantly like you want to kill serena anyway she's the main source of keeping masters alive so if you can take her out and then go after the master you can potentially get points off that and it's going to be good 
First of all, she is beautiful. Lee, get, keep your hands to yourself. Don't make me bust out my lantern of souls. And every one of you that goes after Dreamer uh, hard, like he's a kid, leave him alone. I will brick slap you bitches. But the other, the other second point is along the lines of Nerf Leviticus is that's a guy who'll actually score assassinate for you. Just throwing that one out there. That is true. So that is that is always a risk taking him into that pool. Um, but in the interest of time, let's move on to Vendetta. What are everyone's thoughts on Vendetta in this edition? It's probably the most awkward of the the Killy schemes, just because you have two separate points of failure. You have keeping or uh, killing your opponent's model at the right time while keeping yours alive. And there are some things that are really well suited for that. Uh, someone tried to pull a uh, some trickery with a soulstone miner of scoring that first point of vendetta and then disappearing from the board for the rest of the game. Um, that was narrowly avoided by a good initiative flip once. But uh, if you can pull off some stuff like that, maybe not quite as extreme as just disappearing from the the board, but uh, a model with good tactical maneuverability, leap maybe, always a perennial favorite, uh, you can get that vendetta point and then just run off to a corner and sit there and score victory points. Out of all of them, uh, basically, uh, everyone know, should know this by now, if you're playing against uh, Outcasts, specific, specifically Terra, um, the Scion of the Void is extremely good with at Vendetta uh, because he can attack through other models, uh, do a point of damage, and then keep himself safe unless he's going against an- another Terra crew or some form of Death Marshal uh, or Guild in general, just taking a Death Marshal into it. Uh, but that same thing, uh, I've done things like um, taking an Obedient Wretch because you only need to do one point of damage to the model to for the Vendetta, and a vi- Obedient Wretch is only five Soul Stones. So you throw your little rat do one point of damage to whatever it is that you're wanting to hit and then you just get the obedient wretch out of the way so i think ranged crews are quite good at vendetta especially if you have a ranged model with a stat uh, five plus or a stat six that costs very little like it's not a bad thing to take i'd say that like this is the one that's actually frustrated me the most when i've taken it because something always goes horribly wrong. Like I was playing a bunch of Neverborn Marcus and I'm like, I've got Paul Crockett. This guy's freaking amazing. And he's got a 14 inch gun and he's cheap. And so he's got all these advantages to him. But then anytime I actually went to score with him, he had missed the attack and missed the attack and missed the attack and missed the attack. And it killed me. That is always the risk uh, that comes with the, the dependent schemes uh, that your opponent can just do something to, to ruin your day, like make you flip the black joker. Uh, but it can be engineered, uh, so I don't think you can completely discount them. I would say that the like biggest overall take-home message from the killing schemes, and this actually applies to Malifaux in general, is that you need to know your opponent's crew when you're selecting these schemes. Uh, anytime that you're picking a dependent scheme, you need to know your opponent's crew. So you can tell how difficult you think it'll be to kill their masters, their models, how easily they'll uh, thwart your attempts to uh, drop scheme markers and, 
or do whatever it takes to to score your victory points. So uh, knowing what your opponent does is is capable of doing is absolutely essential for any of these dependent schemes, particularly the killy ones, because you're going to be doing a lot of interaction. Uh, unless you are uh, someone like Hamlin, who can just bring in uh, AoE damage that just happens. Just blow up a rat, you automatically take damage. Who needs to resist that? Shake my fist at Hamlin. <laughs> wow, that's, a, that's an interesting take. I, Hamlin is not the one that I would have expected like hot hate takes for um but sorry we gotta we gotta move on just in the interest of time to well hold on before we move on i, I did have one thing that i want to mention there are uh, a lot of models in the game where it's they'll have a some form of insignificant ability that uh most people don't really recognize they'll have a lore or they'll have a an ability that puts distracted it's just a, a random ability but then there's going to be this trigger there that says it does one point of damage <laughs> Okay, Josh is laughing at, but uh, that that one point of damage. So if you get something below half health, and uh, one of that little insignificant model uh, can do a lore, and then get the that uh, you're saving that card due to the one point of damage. That's all you need to do, and then you score the vendetta. And you don't, and most of those are ranged abilities, so you don't even need to be close for it. So uh, keep those type of abilities in mind when you're looking at vendetta. So. All right, so let's move on to Hidden Martyrs. This is a return in Gaining Ground Season 1 of a scheme in the Frame for Murder lineage. So for those who weren't around in the original 2nd Edition Malifaux, this was the whole premise of you can score points even when your own models are dying, which was often a really great selling point as I was teaching people the game, getting new folks enrolled. It's like, look, this isn't just blow up your opponent's stuff. It's you can be sneaky. You can frame your own guy. So Hidden Martyrs comes from a long line of those type of schemes. And, and I'm frankly really excited that this is back in Gaining Ground Season 1. Uh, what are your all's takes on, ha well, one, having this type of a scheme and two, this particular implementation. My personal uh, preference, I usually, as I mentioned, I usually try to stay away from uh, some of the, the killing things, especially things that are uh, dependent. But uh, Hidden Martyrs is one of those things that it's, it's kind of funny how some crews work with this because I personally love Obey Masters and I love using Obeys. And uh, Hidden Martyrs is one of those things that I can guarantee by uh, getting, a, if a model gets low in any way, shape, or form, and then they're like, oh, I'm not going to kill that model because of Hidden Martyrs, I can obey you to kill that model for me. Uh, on top of that, I can also move that model into all these nifty hazardous auras and things like that that are so popular now. And your aura kills it, it counts as you killing it as well. So uh, that's one of the things that I like about Hidden Martyrs, but it, when picking this scheme, you need to look at your opponent's crew and figure out out if that's something that you can do with the crew that you're playing. I'm not really a fan of Hidden Martyrs, just because I don't say it. You, you're scoring victory points wholly because your opponent is, is playing the game. It's like you have an annoying cheap model. They want to kill that model and therefore seed victory points for it. Uh, the alternative is that model getting to go and act with, with impunity. Uh it's 
not quite a false choice, but it's not like a really good tactical choice. It's not a pleasant tactical choice to have to make. It's like, well, I either lose victory points because they're accomplishing these strats and other schemes, or I, uh, or my opponent gains victory points because I prevented them from doing that. And that, that sort of lose-lose situation that you're uh, handing to your opponents just never leaves a good taste in my mouth. So you're saying that your, your criticism of it is more for the feels-bad aspect of the person who's being scored against like oh well i killed your model and wait you get a point what yeah it's just it's not really your opponent doing anything to score that victory point your opponent simply exists and therefore gets victory points or ceases to exist i suppose is the the way you can put it and frequently you see this uh play out as a cheap model is the sacrificial one and a fairly expensive model is the uh, one that you want to keep alive. And there's a balancing act with that. If your opponent doesn't have like a really expensive model, you can make it difficult for them to score that second point of, of uh, hidden martyrs. But that first point borders on a gimme unless you want to seed whatever uh, you're permitting them to do with that, that cheap model for the rest of the game. It is an interesting balancing act though because if you, it, one, it's fairly easy to accidentally telegraph the model. And then your opponent can either decide, well, it's not worth actually killing this model to give them a point, so I'm just not going to. Or if they're a crew that has the option of condition-based counterplay, they can try to set them on fire, put them in hazardous terrain, poison them, do something that where that model is going to kill itself without you getting a point. Um, however, if you, if you go for models that are in the like six ish stone mark, often those are models that your opponent can't necessarily afford to just let them live. But if you have several models in that stone class, they may not be able to predict which one or ones are going to be part of the scheme, which I think creates a little bit of extra tension in the killing schemes. So where public enemies becomes not just maximum killing as fast as possible, but like you have to think twice about like, wait, are they, what are they doing? Are they purposely putting forward a model they want to die? I, I think it adds a little bit of nuance and interest. Yeah, and uh, I'll actually do uh, – I'll switch things up and I'll actually do the opposite of what Josh was saying. Uh, sometimes Shocker. I'll take like – yeah, sometimes I'll take an eight or uh, a seven, eight, nine stone model and a little cheat model. And my little cheat model is just back there uh, supporting and doing something while my larger model is running into the thick of things. And, you know, most people – it depends on, you know, the crew. If I'm playing against Leviticus, he's going to be like, oh, giant model in the center, center of the board. I can take that thing out easily. Well – thanks you just got me points but the big problem with that is one of the biggest mistakes i see people make when they telegraph this is they'll play safe and cautiously with their models on turn one and then on suddenly on turn two they go reckless with one or two models and you're like why were you like hiding them behind things and then suddenly you're like oh yeah i'm gonna go run them in the middle of your crew now and i'm like yeah let's just go ahead and bury you and leave you where you are and then i'll go after the rest of the crew it that is a that is a good tactic 
the one caveat I will put on my initial criticism of uh, Hidden Martyrs is that I will frequently take it because it's pretty easy to score. Like, sure, your opponent feels bad about that, but man, is it pretty easy to score. The only time it was easy for Josh to score in his life. Oh. <laughs> I kid, I kid. All right, uh, so next we have Let Them Bleed. God, I hate this mission. I... I, I <laughs> Oh, I, I don't think anyone here. Now, hold on. You, one of you guys are probably going to disagree with me. I don't think anyone here likes let them bleed because it's counterproductive to what you want. You do not want to get their most expensive, dangerous models down to half life and then just are down to like wound them and then just leave them there because it's fun to do. Like that's now there has been a tactic that I saw where you kill off the most expensive model and then it leaves like weaker models as the the ones that are left over. But in general, I don't like this uh, scheme and I do rarely pick it. I would dare say this is the least tactically sound scheme in the gaining grounds pool. Like you said, you're leaving their most powerful things alive for extended periods of time. Uh, And then after that, even if you get that first point, the next step is to widely distribute damage, not focus fire, not try to take stuff out, but to just spread around damage so that everything's hurt. And if you take something out, sure, uh, at the end of the game, it'll make it a little bit easier because there are fewer models in play. But like keeping stuff alive and then just weakening a whole bunch of things, as Herman mentioned before, uh, the efficacy of most models to, to not decrease the lower their wound count. In some cases, it gets better. Uh, so that just all adds together to make it one of the least tactically sound schemes in the entire pool. He says this after having scored it against me in our most recent game of Karai versus Parker. So I, I could say it's still tactically sound. Factually correct, but uh, that's just arguing consequences at this point. <laughs> so I used to never take this scheme, and then I actually started picking it up specifically with like AOE crews or ones that hand out like a lot of conditions like burning, witch hunter, things like that, where all of a sudden all that ping damage adding up, by turn three, a lot of the big guys are dead, and a lot of the other stuff is kind of wounded, so it becomes a lot easier, but you have to have that specific crew that's putting out burning, that's putting out poison, and spreading it around a lot. So I think it's another one where you talk about like um, research mission where you have to have the right tools for it, let them bleed. You have to have the right strategy and the right crew and the right tools. And if all those combined, it works quite well. Otherwise, not so much. Like Karai is a good example of Vengeance. You're going to get that ping damage on a lot of different models just passively. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I was going to uh, mention uh, Karai's crew and also uh, the the Nephilim crew. They're they're both very good at, uh, you know, you run them in, the black blood sp- splashes. It doesn't do a whole lot, but that means that that model is now on, you know, one wound less than, uh, you know, and that's easy for you to score at that point. So uh, plus uh, Nakima herself and her mature Nephilims can take out anything that's like any large opposition. So in certain crews, Karai, Nakima, things like that, I don't think it's as bad, but at the same time, you're also, that's kind of a telegraph. If you, if this is here and you're bringing Nakima into me, uh, I, I'm kind of pretty sure that you're going to be trying to do this. And if you don't seal the deal with Nakima, if you don't just wipe something off the board or make a good faith effort to wipe something off the board, people are going to be suspicious. 
Well, yeah, that's where the the um, taking a model off. So, like, if you have a if Azamu is standing there and you have the, the opportunity to take out Azamu, uh, the good players will continue and take out Azamu. And then that leaves, you know, little small minions that are left over afterwards that you need to get down because, uh, you know, it, it sets things up and it kind of makes people think that you're not actually doing this when you are. No, that just means you'll get another Azamu coming at you next turn. <laughs> Uh, we can talk about Jan Lowe and his stupid reliquaries uh, on a future podcast. Uh, but with that said, let us move on, jump to a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about the scheming schemes, the last category. And we're back with the final grouping of schemes and these are the scheme marker schemes for which we have the name uh, so real quick these are leave your mark breakthrough sabotage spread them out in runic binding we'll save runic binding to the end of these because we all have some thoughts about that boo but, uh, hiss <laughs> spoilers but Jeff. Yeah, yeah, spoilers, exactly. But uh, but in general, these are schemes that involve placing scheme markers in particular places on the board in relation either to the center line, the center of the board, pieces of terrain, or the deployment zones. So who wants to take the first swing at which of these is their favorite in the scheme marker scheme pool? So I think I have a little bit of an advantage in this in that with Guild Neverborn, you have access to Lucius in both, and then Guild particularly has access to Investigators. Because a lot of people like to complain about this. They're like, oh, it's so easy to deny. You just drop another scheme marker on the center, and you're good to go. But in particular, there's a key model there, the Investigator, that says all your opponent's scheme markers, they don't count. And the Investigator with the ability to put you on negatives to attack him is actually fairly difficult to uh, take out. So that, those two particular factions have a really key model that's able to score that and prevent your opponent from denying it very easily. And that overcomes, I think, a lot of people's objections to this scheme. Uh, I will say, uh, going along, that that's an excellent point. Uh, the guild investigators are just phenomenal when it comes to scheme worker type schemes. But uh, along that same line, uh, people that have a ranged blowing up uh, ability like Iggy, uh, where they can get rid of the scheme markers, are also invaluable. Um, save that for last and get rid of your opponent's scheme marker that's there uh, and place one of your own. Uh, but I will also uh, point out that when you're placing scheme markers, a lot of people... I don't do this. They're uh, used to kind of putting the scheme markers in base contact as in like touching the rim of your base model. Um, those 50 millimeters and 40 millimeter bases are great for uh, certain things. Uh, actually, all of these schemes that we're talking about right now involving scheme markers because they can move to where you need them to move to and then put the scheme marker underneath them. And that scheme marker can't be removed. You can't see it. You can't interact with it. And so it kind of protects that scheme marker until that model gets moved in some way. Yeah, I mean, particularly the ability on Iggy Arson is available on the undercover reporter as well. And for all of these, those two guys make fantastic anti-scheme schemers. Um, and then like, if you're putting things under, uh, look at Fiona Gage, she gains positives. So anytime that you have that scheme marker underneath her, she's benefiting from it and you're scoring from it and your opponent's not removing it. 
which is a really nice combination for that specific model. This also piggybacks with uh, Herman and Lucius. Uh, you can tell he and I play uh, Neverborn a lot, but um, Lucius is, uh, he can bring the guild lawyers that have obeys. And even if you're standing there on top of that ski marker, uh, one small obey and suddenly you've picked back up on your own ski marker when you weren't expecting to. So uh, you can also, if your opponent has brought somebody like Iggy, you, know, you can obey him to do the sabotage on your own markers or on their markers. So, so I think... The all of the many counterplay ideas that you all just put forward really explains why when I look at scheming schemes, I'm looking for ones that I can do completely far away from the opponent. So I am a big fan of breakthrough and spread them out in in Outcast and in Ten Thunders. And that's because in Outcast, we have access to the Midnight Stalker, who I think is one of the best scheme runners in the game because of he has both leap and once he crosses the center line, he's getting fast. So his mobility allows him to just be completely away from the enemy's models and from the enemy's counter scheme tech. Uh, similarly, in... Ten Thunders, you have things like the Hucksters who can just saturate the board. And you have models, even like Masaki, who sometimes what she just needs to do is be in the backfield and drop a ski marker completely away from the enemy's models. So I prefer to gravitate towards those schemes that are harder to deny and involve spreading my models out. Yeah, Misaki is the best 16 Soulstone uh, scheme runner in the game. I think Lady J might give her a run for the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, Teleportation? Terra's mm. up there too, though. Oh, Terra's excellent at this. But um, I also want to throw the, throw this in there. A lot of people don't... They, Asura Rotten has got a lot of uh, bad rap. I love taking Asura Rotten when I'm playing Rezzers and spread them out because she can summon a uh, mindless zombie... Uh, over on the other end of the board the zombie can just walk over there she can make the zombie like the zombie himself can now interact because she can see him and he can put down a ski marker there and like are are you really going to go out of your way to go kill a mindless zombie like okay I've won in either way because now whatever model that you sent over to kill the mindless zombie is now completely out of the like and all I did was have to use uh, a middling crow to do it like it's a Sarah Rotten is very good for spread them out so why don't we let's talk a little bit about sabotage because that is sabotage is a really unique scheme um really in gaining ground season one there's three schemes that are new to the game in that they don't really tie into a scheme that we've seen before in the history of malfo and we've already covered research mission which is my favorite of the new schemes uh we have Runic Binding, which we'll talk about in a minute, which we think missed the mark a little bit. But what do you all think about Sabotage? This was an attempt to make the terrain on the board matter while also providing some really interesting choices about which piece you choose, making it either more, uh, either easier or harder for your opponent to deny. Who wants to take Sabotage? 
I actually like Sabotage because I think it takes everything that I had problems with on Breakthrough and fixes them. Because unlike, you know, the one percenter factions like Outcasts, I'm playing the Working Man factions of Guild Neverborn, and we don't have things like the uh, Midnight Stalker. So we have to do things the hard way. So we do have a lot of models that are able to throw down two scheme markers in a turn, be it from having Ambush or thing or Nimble with Grimwell. But the next problem you got to solve is you got to get around your opponent's uh, crew, and you got to actually get into that deployment zone, which based on standard is a lot easier than, say, corner. But the thing with Sabotage is now you can pick a terrain piece that's, I think it's, what, three inches of their deployment zone? But then you have that entire terrain piece to work with. So you can pick something that's coming up towards, you know, closer to the center of the table. It's easier to get over there, and it's easier for a lot of these models that aren't as mobile and can't leap around to uh, put down these markers. So my stance on Sabotage, coming from a tournament standpoint, the first point is fairly easy to get. The second point is very, very, very difficult to get. Uh, all that has to happen is somebody just has to put a ski marker anywhere over there and you're, you're completely screwed. Um, the two ski markers next to you know some form of terrain is usually easy to get. You can look at the board and be like, I can get that. Uh, that that's going to be easy. It can't be really be stopped. Uh, I mean, you can try it, but it's... Uh, it's too easy to accomplish. Uh, the second part is too difficult to accomplish. So um, if I'm going into a game where I think that I can win with seven points, I might take Sabotage. But if I think that I'm going to, like if I'm playing against a really good player, I may have to give up Sabotage for something else because that second point is hardly a guarantee. Yeah, just too many moving parts. There are multiple ways it can be thwarted. Uh, either by positioning of your opponent's models or the actions of your opponent's models, so you have to be cognizant of both. They just casually drop a scheme marker. If you're going up against the crew with really good scheme marker tech, uh, they can just put one out sometimes for even less than one AP. Uh, and, well, there goes that second point, unless you go over there and spend AP to pick up their marker. Uh there are ones that just have fewer moving parts and less of an ability to thwart them than sabotage. I will say uh, some models are a little more in play. Like as Herman was saying with uh, things like the midnight stalker, but uh, things like hucksters make this, the first part of the scheme just incredibly trivial. I, I jumped across the board, stuck down two scheme markers and someone somewhere else did an interact action to drop one. So uh, that that's, some models are very good at this. So any, you bring up a good point though about the difficulty potentially of half the scheme. Um, something that Malifaux third edition does that second edition didn't do was it had this whole format where every scheme is you do one thing during the game and one thing at the end. In some cases it's do the thing and then do the thing again. Uh, or do the thing again, but more, like Breakthrough. In some cases, it's do the thing, but differently. What are your all's thoughts on taking a scheme that you know you might just get one point from because you think that either with the strategy, you can dominate the strategy, so you just need to be up by one, or do you really think you have to go for two? I'm going to take this one, and I think Herman's going to feel the exact same way that I do about this. Maybe not because he's coming from the guild perspective, but from Neverborn, 
we don't have a lot of the models, uh, the capability of the models that some of these other factions have. We don't have leaps. We don't have uh, easy ways of gaining fast. We don't like these are things that, that the Neverborn doesn't have. So getting that one first point and focusing on denying after that is a legitimate strategy. And I would argue that it's one of the strategies that as Neverborn you have to do, because in some of these cases, you're not going to be able to put down, you know, six ski markers throughout the game uh, with a Neverborn crew. We just don't have abilities that allow us to put down multiple ski markers unless you're playing cross-faction, like bringing in Lucius and his uh, uh, whatever the... False witness. False witness. Thank you. Um, you know, the Neverborn don't have those type of abilities. So uh, denying schemes, that's why we consider Iggy to be so good, is because you thought you were going to get this scheme and suddenly he blew it up from, uh, you know, what is it, like 20 inches away, and now you're not going to get that scheme. So I think it's a legitimate plan to plan for one point and then deny. Uh, unfortunately, and I really hate myself for doing this, I do have to kind of agree with Jeff on that. Uh, playing scheme denial is like almost my bread and butter. Uh, we had one as uh, a tournament back before the COVID times where I was up against Summerteeth Jones, and this was back before Dashhole got buffed. And I got obliterated, like completely obliterated, not even a joke. The final score was two to one because I just denied the hell out of it because if you're going to take me out, I'm going to make it painful for you too. So I think that's actually a very valid strategy, and that's where I come with score first, score often, score as much as you can, because as that attrition goes on, you're going to start losing models. It's going to be harder and harder. But there's a lot of denial in some of these factions where there isn't a lot of scoring, and you can make up the difference that way. So the last, well, not the last, but uh, another scheme in this group that we haven't talked about yet much is spread them out. This is a scheme that comes kind of from a long a long line of schemes that are about putting down three markers in various parts of the board. There's been past iterations where you had three on the center line or three in the deployment zone, which we still have in the end point of breakthrough. What are your all thoughts on spread them out? Do you take it? Do you like it? Do you not like it? It is a perfectly adequate scheme. Uh, it requires some of the highest scheme marker investment of any of them. So unless you have like some powerful scheme marker tech in your crew, uh, it's probably not something you want to combine with another heavy scheme marker. Like I don't, I would never combine that with a uh, breakthrough for the, the aforementioned, you need to put out just a ton of scheme markers over the course of the game. Um, but in any strategy where you're likely going to be spread out at various parts of the board, uh, you know, symbols of authority, uh, uh, corrupted ley lines, you're, you're probably going to have models in those locations anyway. Might as well spend an AP and drop a scheme there. Or less than an AP if you have good bonus action scheme marker tech. I think I prefer more in Guild over Neverborn because specifically of the guns. So you have models like the Lone Marshal where you have the ability to charge, take your shot from like 12 inches away, and still drop that scheme marker outside the distance. So by having a really good, strong ranged firebase, you're able to kind of play the flanking game while still contributing to the main conflict. So you're able to kind of have your cake and eat it too. Most of the ranges in Neverborn are range 8. You can still play that game, but it's a lot harder to do. Um, so that's why I kind of prefer where you have these mobile shooting crews. Parker would be a good example in Outcasts. 
So for me, I actually like uh, having spread them out. And the reason why is because it gives the opportunity. Uh, now, as I mentioned, Neverborn aren't very good at putting down lots of ski markers. It's just not something they're good at. But one thing that you can do, you have to approach this from a sideways angle when you play Neverborn. You can never kind of do things head on. Um, and what I'm saying, what I mean by that is one of the easiest things to do is have Zoraida obey models, uh, your enemy models as they're coming up to drop the ski markers for you. And, you know, usually the other crew is spread out. You just use the, uh, whatever eyes of the swamp or whatever it's called to cast through your own guys and, uh, obey the models to drop them. Lucius can do uh, something very similar, but another big point to make, uh, for this is a lot of people will look at this at first and think, Oh, uh, uh, like I have to get them on the enemy table half. That is true. But if a marker is sitting on the center line, it is also on the enemy table half. It doesn't say it has to be wholly on the enemy table half. If even a, a small sliver of it is touching the enemy table half, it is considered on the enemy table half. So uh, you can have three of them on the center line and still score this. All right. So that just leaves us with one more scheme in this pool, and that is... Nope, that's it. That's all. None left. Okay, that's it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, none left. So Blank card. I, I have to say, I have to say for the record, so in, in my article on Third Road Wars, I, I did call out saying, like, there are no dead schemes in this pool. Partially, that was a dig on all-around fun guy and great outcast player Cody um shout out to cody good dude uh but in all seriousness runic binding is while maybe technically not dead is extremely difficult like it it potentially has play in some very specific crews that can just spam out markers uh but i, I think this was one where the idea was creative I know during the beta, they went through several different iterations of it. I won't talk about the specifics of them, but the idea of having something where you're, you're playing around with geometric shapes on the board is cool, but the final implementation, I think, just didn't quite work just because it's so hard to do. And even if your crew is capable of doing it, you have to ask the question, but why? <laughs> Why would you risk it? Why would you go out of your way to do this inordinately difficult scheme if you have a, a crew that can just crap out enough scheme markers to make uh, runic binding possible? You can do so many other schemes. So I'm actually going to take a different point of view here. Because Ooh. I play... Yeah, fancy. Because again, I'm playing the good guys. So I'm playing crews like Nelly, like Lucius, that specifically can crap out all these scheme markers, but they're also inviting you to come to me. So if I know that you're playing like Resurrectionists, they don't play a lot of range crews, they play a lot of melee crews. I know that you're coming to me, and I know that within close proximity to myself, I pump out a lot of markers, and I buff myself from them, then this is actually a really useful one for me to do, because you're going to be in the vicinity anyway where I'm going to be making all these scheme markers. So it becomes an incidental scheme for these specific crews. Can I ask you a question? Yes. How many times have you scored Runic Binding? Don't worry about that. No, no. Like, uh, I, I've actually scored Runic Binding in a tournament, I think, three times total. 
Um, and the, the key to runic, now don't get me wrong, runic binding is not a good scheme. You need to outplay your opponent in order to do this. But as an example, uh, in the Halloween uh, Haven tournament that we went and went up to, uh, I played Masaki in uh, one of those games. And uh, I, towards the end of one of the turns, uh, I put down a scheme marker and had her come come out of a shadow marker that was behind the guy's crew that I was playing against. And she dropped a scheme marker, walked, dropped a scheme marker. That made three, and it just so happened that the models were all kind of bunched up, and I was able to score it. Uh, I've also done it where I incidentally put down scheme markers, uh, just two random scheme markers. I think I was bluffing, uh, spread them out or something like that. And then with... Um, Von Stuck, I had his totem throw uh, a scheme marker past the opponent and caught the three models that I needed into with that. Uh, so it's not an impossible thing, uh, especially when you have crews like Herman was mentioning, uh, like the guild lawyers. There's a lot of crews that have the attached uh, tome trigger where you make the enemy drop a scheme marker. And uh, those things, if you can just you have to play it off in a sneaky way where you, if you flip the tome or you cheat in a high tome and you're like, Oh, I got the trigger for, you know, drop a ski marker. You just put the ski marker in base contact with it. And then you're attacking another model later and it drops a ski marker. And then as the last turn, you drop your third and you're like renic binding. Now, once you declare renic binding, you are never going to get that third point. So just go ahead and kiss that one. Goodbye. So to give you a more honest answer, Josh, in the last, two months that I've been recording all of our games, Runic Binding has only ever been in one of my pools and I did take it and that was Euripides against you. And I nearly scored it too before things went horribly south in that game. Nearly. So I think that's interesting though, because you said, Jeff, and you'll never score that end point. I actually think the end point of Runic Binding is much easier to score. You need to have three ski markers within five of an enemy model. Like that... That was literally a scheme from previous editions of Malifaux. Uh, the, the old version of plant explosives was surround a model with scheme markers. So like, so I, if you score the first point, I don't think you'll ever score the second point against a good opponent. You can surprise an opponent at the end of the game with you know three scheme markers around a model. That's definitely possible. Yeah, I think it's when they have the knowledge that that is what you're gunning for, it's a very high bar with multiple moving parts, considering both where you can put scheme markers and where your opponent can move. Uh, that if they know what they're looking for, that's difficult. That can be fairly easy, though, in a crew like McCabe, where you're bringing hucksters, so you, you can drop out two of the three you need, and then McCabe can move the enemy models places and ensure that yeah okay you take you pick a model that already activated and you're like cool i'm going to surround them with ski markers now granted you have to have models still alive your huckster has to be alive so there are certainly there's hoops but i think it's doable and i think in the future uh there will be more play for certain things like this i think uh 
that uh, I, I, I would assume that in the future with the Explorer Society coming out, that there's going to be some models that uh, can assist with some of these things as well. But uh, in general, there are a handful of models that accomplish this and can do it well. Uh, but right now, there's only a handful of them. Uh, I think Herman said it best. Nelly, uh, this is kind of a bread and butter scheme for her. So with that, let's, uh, let's break there. Uh, go to our last break. We're going to come back and talk just briefly about what we'd love to see in a future set of schemes. So stick with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. So for our final segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the future. So we want to cover either schemes or scheme ideas from past editions of Malifaux that you'd love to see come back or brand new ideas either for schemes or for even the format of schemes in general. So to kick things off, we're going to go to Jeff who had an idea for Dig Graves. So I like Dig Graves. I like the first part of the aspect of it where you put a scheme marker down that represents you've dug a grave for somebody. Uh, it has to be within so many inches of a model. You, you're basically showing them their grave and then you kill them to put them in their grave. I love the first part of that in Gaining Ground Season uh, Zero. Uh, I would alter the second part of that and make it to where you have to have uh, three uh, corpse markers or scrap markers they have to be like uh, markers within so many inches of each other and it would have to be a small range something like two or three inches of each other and three being an odd number uh you know it some people would look at that look at that and be like oh well you're gonna have to kill three models within so many inches of each other well that's not the case there are a lot of things nowadays that uh, move markers, uh, they pick up markers, they generate the markers, and you can even kill your own guys. If you're playing, uh, as an example, if you're playing, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, 10 Thunders, and you brought Masaki with you, you can bring one of your Torakage at the end of the turn and run them over to a place where two markers are and kill them yourself. Like, those are things that you can do. So I think that would be something cool to see brought back uh, with a change to it where the second part of it for some uh, factions will be uh, really difficult and for other factions it will be really easy, like Resurrection is just digging up the corpses. But it also provides counterplay to where people can use those corpses for other things like making more dead things or blowing them up and things along that line. So uh, looking forward to something like that. That's an awesome idea, and I definitely hope that Weird A is listening and B considers that for the future. For me, I think the first one that comes to mind, like in preparation for this episode, I looked through all the past scheme pools of Gaining Grounds second edition. And one of the concepts from there that I really liked was the schemes like Marked for Death, where you gave an enemy model a condition. Um, so in this edition, it wouldn't be a condition, it would be a token of some sort, but kind of the reverse of, uh, of the recover evidence scheme, instead of retrieving a token from an enemy model, you want to put a token on an enemy model. So I think that there's probably an interesting way to have that interaction where you're interacting with an enemy model uh, in this edition, either 
with some creative use of like you get the first point by having say two tokens on enemy models and then remove the tokens or maybe at the end of the game have three enemy models with a token on them something like that um, or possibly even consider breaking the format and moving away from just one during the game one at the end to two during the game potentially what are your all thoughts on on a more drastic change like that oh man the two during the game i don't i'm not a fan of that idea as it harkens farther back to uh m1e issues where you would score your point you would zerg your points right away and then just spend the rest of the game doing denial knowing that if you can just stall them out you'll win those will be like highly advantageous in a tournament setting where you're not guaranteed five rounds uh like i really like the the change where they had they forced spreading scoring out over an extended period um I think having more score at the end of an activation as opposed to always being score at the end of a turn to mix things up. But those would have to be appropriately difficult to justify that that uh, lower bar in terms of how much time you have to meet the condition for. I, I would actually uh, like to see something where like you can score two points at the end of the game. Where, uh, as an example of an idea for a scheme, uh, something like Run the Gauntlet, where at the end of the game, if uh, one of your models has uh, reached the other table uh, hat or the other table uh, edge, and then return back to your deployment zone, you score two points. Like, so if you see a model that went to your deployment zone and suddenly hightailing it back to their thing, you got to try to take that model out. Uh, otherwise, they score two points at the end of the game. Like, I'd like to see something like that. You actually stole one of my ideas because I went back to the very first book of uh, Malfo, and they had one called Treasure Hunt, which is you put a treasure mm -hmm. in the, uh, I think it was the enemy deployment zone, and you have to go grab it and bring it back to yours. Yeah, I think those those would be less problematic than two that can be scored during the game. Again, getting back to the issues that you had in late game and M1E. What we really need, though, is more wagons in the game. Yes, absolutely. Fact indestructible wagons that that, I think that was the problem last time <laughs> well i think uh, uh some people had a huge issue with wagons where uh they shoved the wagon across the uh, other side of the table board and then would just go and fight things in the middle um i actually always liked wagons because i played a different game yes i'd push my wagon but i'd also send models over to intercept their wagon and try to stop it from being moved and i think people just completely forgot about like you can try to block it you can go move models to prevent that from happening like and uh at this point in time with the way that the rules have kind of adjusted you can move somebody over to where they can't take interact actions uh while they're standing around that wagon while you're standing there so there's some counterplay there that you just need to look at i was always a fan of wagons I, unpopular opinion I thought it was cool. Maybe that's because in Outcast I had a lot of 50 millimeter size models and I was like, hell yeah, we're going to push the wagon everywhere. This is now a wagon stand podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I don't know about all that. So I had I had another idea. I wanted to run it, run it by you guys and see what you thought. An idea for a new scheme called Advance and Retreat. The first point is scored during the game when all your all of the models in your crew are past the uh, center line, and then the second point is if all of your models are back in your deployment zone. So you just made a scheme where I run at the opponent and die. Because I'm good at that. If you have no models left, all of your models are in your deployment zone. Fact. Fact. Uh, that, that, well, it might need some tinkering, but uh, I don't... <laughs> you know, it I, took me 30 seconds to break it. Well, no, but like you wouldn't be able to score the first... Well, no, I think you have to have at least a model in your deployment zone at the end to score it. Right. I, I would say that you have to have uh, like something like at least half of the models that you started with so that you can't just be like, OK, I got this Necropunk across the midline and he jumps back while the rest of my guys stand here and die. Like maybe like you have to have at least half of the, your starting crew back in your deployment zone. It's interesting how quickly this ramps up. It's like Team Ticonderoga is just circling the wagons now. Well, but but that's such. If you go up expecting that you need your crew to die, like the counterplay is obvious. Your opponent's like, cool. I instead don't kill that guy. Right? Oh, like, good point. Like, I am perfectly okay with my opponent not killing my stuff. I, I like this idea. Like, I think it needs some iterations potentially, but like, I think there's something there. The advancing part is cool. The retreat, that doesn't fit well in with like most strategies that exist in the game uh, in past or future, probably. Or just how a game of Malifaux typically plays out. Like, removing yourself from the uh, rolling clusterfuck in the middle of the board is daunting. I mean, I, I like Herman's idea uh, that he does every game. Advance and die. <laughs> hey, that could be the new version of Hidden Martyrs. Yes. I like that the entire scheme was just an elaborate dig at Herman. I approve. Okay, I've seen my objections. I think we should go forward with it. What are your all thoughts on show of force? So that was a staple of second edition. And granted, second edition, when it started, upgrades were a big thing. Later on in the edition, they used upgrades as patches, which kind of like weirdly made show force too easy. What do you think about having it be a thing in this edition? Maybe it's like summoning upgrades don't count, but other upgrades do count. Upgrades are such an optional component that having something based around them when they're no longer assumed in the same way they were in the past is... Did you just say upgrades were optional? Have you ever taken Cry without the Whisper? Have you ever taken Neverborn without Ancient Pact or Inhuman Reflexes? Have you ever taken Outcasts and taken... Wait, what are their upgrades? Two-thirds of us will brick your fingers. <laughs> yeah, there's no... It's, I feel like upgrades in general are very faction-specific, whether they're good or not. Leadline Coat is not a crutch. Yes, it is. Sure. So I actually, now that we're talking about upgrades, I don't, so some of these upgrades make complete sense to me. Like, uh, you know, you have the 
resurrectionists, they gain terrifying. Cool, I get it. They're undead. You have the uh, outcasts gaining terrifying. Wait, what? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Some of them in the outcast, that makes sense. But you have a Parker crew, and that Parker crew is more scary than a mature Nephilim bearing down on you. Like, that, I have to question that one. Counterpoint. Outcasts as a faction don't make sense. Well, that's true. But that's not scheme-related. But the one that always bothered me was the Arcanists upgrades that they have like this. I don't they clearly are the winners when when you talk about, uh, you know, who has the best upgrades and the whole like I get to take uh, what is Arcane Reservoir uh, into every crew that I have. Um, I get to uh, generate soul stones, you know, the, granted this is a soul stone miner, not an upgrade, but uh, I have a diesel engine that gives concealment to all of my constructs, and what was what's the third one? that like they're, All of them are just insane, like, oh, let's, one of them gives soul stone cash, where your minions can now use soul stones like a, ma- a henchman or a master, like, like, come on, can we, like, spread some of that wealth out to the other factions a little bit? Apparently not. Right. Any last thoughts on future things you'd like to see? Uh, I know for one, I, I would like to see Assassinate leave the pool. It's been in both of the gaining, or gaining ground zero and one. I think it could probably take a rest on the bench and come back in the future. Uh, I think I would like to continue to see the split of four, four, five between positional killing and scheming. Um, I think that that's a good mix, but are there any that you all would like to leave the pool? Um, Actually going back, since you brought up assassinate leaving, one of the things that I'd like to see come back is, uh, and I don't know how we'd uh, adjust it for the second point, but uh, deliver a message where you have to have a minion approach a master and interact with it. Like, I always thought that was a great idea. God, I was just about to say, I want a master interaction one that's specifically not deliver the message, because that was just such a gimme. Like, that was, like, free victory points when it was in the pool. Maybe it's your master has to meet their master be friend oh hostile negotiations your master has to uh interact with their master and then the second point is you have to kill the master that's an interesting (laughs) that escalated quickly like they meet they meet on the center line and they're like hey how you doing let's work this out and then it devolves into them killing each other it's a duel yeah well on that note yeah, are there any others that you all would want to take out? Uh, runic binding. I would I would not miss hidden martyrs if it was gone. Also, fix runic binding. I wouldn't mind catch and release going away. I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, it needs to be kind of adjusted to be better. Fair enough. All right, well, we will see if any of these wish list items or predictions come true whenever the eventual season two comes out. So thank you all for listening and for joining us here. We'll be back in your feed again in a, in a week or two with some more fun and exciting topics. Until then, take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Capital City Crew Podcast. 
We hope you tune in next time.